0: Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. Today I'm speaking to the former Independent for Indi, Kathy McGowan, who has just published her book on the journey uh, to her two terms in office, Kathy Goes to Canberra, Doing Politics Differently. Kathy certainly did do politics differently and she's now inspiring others to follow. Kathy's about community, integrity, humility, opening doors for others, and as you'll hear in this episode, she's about encouraging herself and others to be your best self. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for joining me, Kathy. So, I mean saying that you're a trailblazer is an absolute understatement. Um, You've really reshaped politics in Australia. Um, You took on what was long considered a safe Liberal seat and replacing Sophie Mirabella in the process, completed two terms and then supported the election efforts of another Independent with Helen Haynes. Um, You've since inspired the campaigns of many others running as an independent and, um, well, back in 2013 your election was described as the next evolutionary step for political representatives and I think we've certainly seen a lot of that over the last few years. But I want to just start by actually taking you back to 2013. What, what made you think that that you could do that?
1: Mm. So that's part of the reason why I wrote the book was to explain the journey because it just didn't happen. Um, a, there were a couple of things. One is other people tapped me on the shoulder. It wasn't something that I wanted for myself, but other people could see my potential and also the opportun- my potential personally as a candidate, but also the opportunity in our seat. And I think that's what often happens. is other, And then I was able, it took me six months, mind you, but able to say, yes, I think I could do this, but I can't do it by myself. I'm, I I, can, I could do it if we form a strong team mm. and people, everybody steps up to leadership. I, I, I was happy to be the front woman, but I needed leadership all the way through. And I was blessed because of my experience of being president of Australian Women in Agriculture. Mm. There were a number of members of Australian Women in Ag in the community and we worked together. So we, and there were others, of course, as well, but that formed a very strong nucleus for me, which was a very safe place. And I knew that there's women and my family and my community had my back. Mm. So that when the in, inevitable um, backlash came, I, I felt very secure in that community. So I had to get that right before I really agreed to put, put my hand up. So the opportunity, but also other people's face. And confidence that I I would be able to do this it was really
0: important. Mm, okay, and so then your first day in Canberra, because I mean you couldn't really take that entire network physically with you. Although I do I did did read that hundreds of people people from India did uh, turn up for your maiden speech, which would have been so wonderful to see. But that first day in Canberra, what was it like? I mean, it must be tough for any politician, but especially a woman, and especially not having the big kind of party machine around you.
1: So it was on a personal level, Angela, it was shocking. <laughs> it was shocking because I never thought we could win. Mm. And I, I was very, when, when the, the community asked me, Would I step up? I, it just seemed like an absolutely outrageous thing that we would win the seat. I thought we could make it marginal and competitive and I would do my best to win, but I didn't think that would happen. And then I'd go back to my life. And I had a lovely life on my farm Mm. um, in my community with my a consultancy company working overseas in Papua New Guinea and India, which I loved. And I didn't really want to give it up. But when I won, it was it was a shock for me because I had to. I felt I'd lost my life, and I and I had this new job. So that was. I was in a bit of grieving, Mm. but also when I got to Canberra, I was really excited about the possibility, but in awe, and. I was scared, I suppose, as well, because all these famous people who you knew from television. Mm-hmm. And I felt very much like I was the um, upstart from the country. Mm. But that's how it felt to begin with. But it didn't take me long to realize, like I'd say within four months, I'd worked out that the job could be done, that I would do it probably differently to, well, obviously differently to the party people. And I found my my stride pretty quickly and then I discovered that the issues we were debating, I actually knew about. Like, We were talking about education and how, and I could see that the coalition at the, the, the government wanted to cut funding to education and I, I knew what that would mean. So that was really good. And then the changes to childcare. And I had a really good knowledge about childcare in the region. So these topics came up that I actually knew really well and I knew I could talk to my community and the peak lobby groups and then I, I felt on really safe ground then. I didn't have to cover off every single topic, but the, the ones that I really cared passionately about. And then I I could work with the senators and I could work with other members of parliament to get change done. So once I found my stride on the topics that I knew about, there was really no stopping me. Um, and I was able then to bring all my community skills to parliament mm. and they were totally transferable.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. you. you... You did have incredible experience to take into parliament. Arguably, much more experience than your average politician probably brings into parliament. Especially those who kind of uh, grow up uh, to be a politician, as as a lot I think do. Is that? I mean, is, is that underrated? Do you think in Canberra at the moment? Is it? Uh, did it come as a surprise to people? Oh, uh, I, yes. I, I,
1: and what what was surprising, I think, for people was that. They, some of the coalition men they looked at me and they saw a country woman an older country woman and then they would get very surprised when I got things done but you know, they just couldn't see how how it happened mm. and I think that that's a that's an attribute of a, of, of women generally but also uh, regional women in particular we are really good at working in community to get things done we don't have to be what we call the top dog or the show pony you can actually work in a community and then people come on board and you find the common ground and you move things through in a harmonious way. So I, I brought those skills to Canberra and I, I just know that the place would be so much better if we had more women with those coalition building, mm. clear focused, work hard. Here's the end. Here's the end in mind. I'm not going to get distracted by the politics. I'm actually going to do what needs to be done. And if at the end of the day, it hasn't got my name attached to it, well, that's no big deal. Um, it's the, the, the result is going to be there.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: And I think Parliament is really the less because it doesn't have women with those community and business and managing families and managing husbands and managing grandparents and managing childcare. You know, those multi those multi skills that we all do, um, it doesn't have a lot of people there who are really clever at those things.
0: Mm. What, what I mean on that, what do you think is the best pathway for women who do have that experience? Is, is it to try and follow that independent pathway? It does seem like it's hard to get into one of the major parties if you haven't been involved your whole life. Maybe that's well, changing a bit. Yeah, mm. yeah, clearly I'm biased,
1: Angela. Mm. Uh, and I think for the region, being an independent, was, and certainly for me, it just worked perfectly because I could, I didn't have to sort of what I would call sell my soul to a party and then have to do all the, the political work in the party to get ahead. Um, it was directly reporting to my community and my community held me to account But I also know that that's not everyone's cup of tea. So the answer to your question about pathways, I know there's some really, really good courses around. There's the Pathways to Politics, which is for everybody. There's the Women for Election um, that's doing some really good work. So I would say to anyone interested, um, do one of those courses and then get yourself a mentor. So if you're interested in party politics, find someone you admire who's in that party of your preference, and then go and do volunteer work with them and get, you know, go and meet them and get to know how they do their job and get a sense of, well, that's this could work for me. Because I think politics is really interesting. You can't actually go and do a university degree in it. The, mm. way, it, the way it's learned is through that apprenticeship and that mentoring. Um, that's, that's the system. And I think if you're interested in politics, then find a mentor and go and do work experience with them and have a really good look around and think, well, do my... Do my values and behaviour line up with the party? And then, if they don't, well, then you don't find another alternative for yourself. Mm, mm.
0: And there is and like you say, there is a lot of support there. We definitely feel that a women's agenda and we've 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 done a bit of stuff with women for election and pathway to politics and that there is a great network. Even if you're not even in that network yet, it does seem like the kind of thing that is is so supportive and would be willing to to help you out and, and point you in various directions and, and just to make sure that you have a start on a network behind you like like what you mentioned that you had behind you, Kathy. That's um, right, yes. Yeah. So Last year you won an award for integrity and I know that you're very, very proud of this, obviously. <laughs> um, you, you couldn't, like, what what a beautiful thing to win an award in and at the time you gave a quote to Women's Agenda, you said that people of integrity know when justice, compassion and mercy are of greater service to the nation than force, fear and punishment. Can I ask you a little bit more just to talk through what in integrity means? And do we have enough of it in leadership at the moment?
1: That's such a good question, isn't it? So for me, integrity was clearly linked to my reputation and understanding what sort of politician I wanted to be. And it, it, it was illiterative in the sense that I think I had an intellectual idea about what sort of leader I wanted to be. But as I got into the campaign and started thinking about it, uh, so the answer to your question about integrity, it's got to do with character, Mm. but it's also got to do with institutions and structures and boundaries. So initially you can have people of good structure, but the institution might not be one that honours integrity. And what I found in Indi was in the campaign – We had an arrangement in 2013 that everybody who wanted to volunteer, we requested that they sign a values document as to how they'd behave in the campaign Hmm. and that got translated into uh, Be Your Best Self was the handle we used to describe um, that and the we, at every single training event we had, people would talk about, well, what does it mean to be your best self as you're campaigning? And it meant not not talking down the opponent, not saying nasty things about each other, yeah. uh, not backstabbing, a whole lot of discussion. So we would workshop it. So that was early in the piece. And, mm. and what I found when I became a member of parliament, for example, I'd be going shopping, doing my grocery shopping. And... Uh, one particular famous case: a, a woman came up to me and in the shopping, in the supermarket, and she said, Kathy, I'm just very disappointed with you. You haven't been your best self." Mm. And I was, I said, "Oh, tell me what have I done?" And she said, "Well, I wrote to your office, and I haven't had a reply to the letter." And I said, "Oh, well, that's not good. When did you write?" And she wrote, "You know, maybe two or three weeks ago," and she didn't have a reply. And it, it was really it stunned me because that's how being your best self translated to that woman. Mm. And consequently I went back and we we absolutely reviewed and redid all our office procedures so that we actually had a turnaround time of um, seven days for our constituent inquiries. and that mm. became a key performance indicator. So it wasn't just being a woman of integrity in how I voted it had it had to my community made me and called me to be a woman of integrity and one of my word right through my business. Mm. So um, I grew in integrity in the job. And then that quote that you read out came from the work we were doing with asylum seekers, and mm. just how sad there was a particular lobby group in my community who, who thought I didn't do enough um, around speaking up against the Australian policy of offshore detention. And I thought I'd done a lot, and then they said, "No, no, you haven't done nearly enough. You've got to do more." So they really pushed me to to be much more um, have much more impact in Canberra on this topic beyond what I thought I'd done enough. Um, And they ended up coming up to Canberra. They ended up doing a huge amount of work in in conjunction with me. So the community called me to keep being better than perhaps I'd thought i reached my limit and they would call me for more. So the, the lovely side of that was I really grew as a person. And I have to say I grew in humility as I came to understand how passionate and how hard... These community groups were working on the issues that were really important to them, and if I could do any, and I came to understand that I could, I could do things for them by opening doors for them in Canberra and facilitating space and raising my issues, and, and that that opened my eyes more to what was going on. So, mm. yeah, I really did grow. I think in in those, um, those human, really important human characteristics through the job but it was the community that, that held me to it. It wasn't something that I sort of did myself.
0: I just wish we could transfer that be your best self to every leader in whatever institution it is anywhere because I think that what you're saying there, one thing I'm thinking, I mean, is it does sound exhausting because you're kind of constantly holding yourself to account and you're constantly improving and and constantly obviously trying to keep up with some of the expectations of other people as well. But it also says that you're comfortable evolving and I think that's where it, it seems like a lot of people run into a lot of issues and particularly in politics we see that is when you get stuck in your ways and you have to, you may actually want to change but it's almost like you can't because of things that you've said in the past or because of things that you've done in the past or because of how little action you did there. It's almost like you can't evolve to be that because you've sort of been typecast as this type of person and I feel like we see that a lot whereas this idea of being able to to constantly evolve that could really translate to a lot more people do you sense that it rubbed off on other people in canberra at all i i I don't i don't know about rubbing off in canberra but it certainly did in the electorate Mm.
1: and and went with it was that we did strategic planning for my office so i said look i can do work on you know refugees work on transport work on mobile here's the five topics that i'm really going to be pushing i can't do every i can't do everything and so then we worked with the community groups to say well what i can do is open doors for you but you're you've got to come to canberra and you've got to, have to be solutions focused and you've got to be your best self and then you can come to canberra and do your own lobbying there and so consequently that 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 actually happened Uh, and we, every week we'd have two or three community groups, local government, all sorts of groups come up to Canberra. We'd organise, we'd organise accommodation and billets so it didn't cost them too much money. And then they would get passes under the guidance of my staff and we would walk them around Parliament House and show them how to do politics. So that really rubbed off.
0: Mm. And people
1: would move from being really cynical and not, you know, having opinions Mm. about people they didn't even know to being, oh, I can see how this could work. And let's not have this image in our prejudge a politician in our head. Let's go and put an argument and have a solution, and this is how it could work, and see what the result was. And frequently, so so often, communities came away with getting yeses to their requests, getting funding, mm-hmm. and it worked out that the government would not would not say, "Oh, Kathy McGowan will give you the money," but if a community group or a local government group go, went up looking for more money for a headspace, the government would say, "Oh, yeah, we'll give you this money," and and it was fine. Because they would, when they'd made the public announcement, that invite the, you know, the what they call the duty senator, who would mm. be a coalition person to make the announcement, and then the community would invite me to be there as well. So you have to let go a little bit of the wanting to be the top dog all the time. But I, I didn't mind as long as the thing happened. Mm. I didn't need um, the community knew I'd done the work. I, I didn't need to get the praise all the time. So being able to share, being able to share the uh, the um, the political kudos was a, a really important part of that. And the community got that and they could see how I worked. And then there was this, this spread of generosity, if you want, people really helping each other, um, I, telling each other how when they went to Canberra, this has happened and I'll come with you and I'll be a mentor to you. And mm. so there was a growth of people supporting in the community, supporting each other. And it's still there, it's very, very strong in the electorate.
0: Mm. Mm, wow, to create that culture of people empowering each other, opening those doors, and, and supporting each other in that way—that's incredible. Where do you get I mean, the be your best self? I, I have to—I think I need to go back to your childhood a little bit on this because um, I, I know I read that you're one of thirteen siblings, um, which and you grew up on a farm, and I also read that you failed your first year of university, which is is, is rather interesting when it comes to this idea of being your best self, but maybe. Talk me through how your siblings and that sort of upbringing and and those experiences in your early years of university really spurred you on and and drove your ambition to do other things and to keep pushing to to be your best self. Yeah, well, I
1: certainly
0: was a poor student, Angela. That's for sure. And it was very <laughs> I didn't mean hard to work. throw that in there. That though, no, that no, sounded kind of rude. Right. But um, yeah. I just thought it was interesting. So because I yeah. might add, you you did and I, I you did go on and. Um, you went and did those classes again, and it was probably yeah. more work in the end, obviously. But, but maybe starting looking at your family life and your, your siblings, and because they're, they're they're all incredible people too. So, yeah, how how does that help?
1: So, um, certainly my parents, isn't it? And with, mm-hmm. and being part of a large family, you really, well, in our case, there was a lot of interdependence and an expectation from mum and dad that the big kids looked after the little kids, and we would work together. There was that. There's also a very strong ethos in the community where I live and I still think exists in many, many rural communities Of you've actually got to help each other and there's an expectation that the community is bigger than the individual. So when the bushfires come through, everyone gets on the truck regardless of politics and there's a job for everybody. And I've certainly um, been actively involved in community groups all through my um, adult life. And I've learned so much from the older and I'm going to say women leaders of the land care group who taught me about this way of leading, that, which was different to some of the way that the men led, um, and they would help me become a, a, a cooperative leader and build consensus in the land care group and not think you were the best just because you were the president mm-hmm. because the person who turned up with the tractor and did the work on them, the land was equally as important as the president. So there was, a, there was a, an understanding that all roles are important and that you have to work with everybody so I learned a lot of that. And then this, being president of Australian Women in Ag, agriculture was just a huge thing. So I, w- I, w- I didn't start out as being president. And like many people, I, I moved through the ranks. When Australian Women in Ag was first formed, I was the secretary. And then I became the communications person. And then I did this and then I did that. And then I became the vice president. And then I went and did a leadership course at that time. That was the Australian rural leadership course. And I learned a huge amount there. And then I became president sort of after 10 years and working. And then I was president for two years and then someone else took on that job. Mm. So it, it was it was a journey about being effective. But I have to say is the most important thing I learned along the way is that you can be really busy doing busy work. And if it's not effective, well, then you need to re-look at it. Mm-hmm. So how to become effective as a leader. And the answer being your best self. Mm. Almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you are your best self, you're going to be much more effective because you're not you're not um, pretending. But also, people can see that that you are who you are, and then they can they gather around you much more easily because they know that if you're relaxed in your in yourself, then you're going to be much easier to work with because you're not going to be judging everybody else and saying they're not perfect because you understand your own frailty. Mm. So it, it was the Be Your Best Self. I'm not quite sure where it actually came from, but it did grow out of those early discussions when we were forming Voices Friend Eye mm. and that we knew we were going to have a formidable opponent in the Liberal Party candidate and we didn't want to fall into the trap of just doing politics in the nasty, bickering, old way. We actually did want to show the community that there was a better way of doing it. So I think it grew out of those discussions.
0: Mm. Mm. And can I ask you then, I mean, uh, going further back, I mean, to your family life a little bit, um, I did want to hear a little bit more about about your siblings because we have come across a few of them on women's agenda in various forms mm. and um, so quite a remarkable family, obviously. What, what was the breakdown like? I know that you were the, the fourth eldest there.
1: Yes. So there's 13 children. Mm. There were, my mum had actually more children, children than that, but um, they were They didn't all survive. So there's 13 children. I've got three brothers whom you know I love dearly, and I've got nine sisters, mm. and I'm one of the older ones. So, and a, and, and my mum, and particularly, you know, she's a, she was what we would call a farmer's wife, a dairy farmer's wife, and a full time mother, and was just the most fantastic role model for us because she was. Uh, She understood patriarchy and how it worked in agriculture and she understood the support you have to give to girls. So just a lovely story. I went to Monash University and when I was there, I wanted to buy a motorbike and uh, (laughs) Dad was not at all um, in favour of that. Mm -hmm. But my mother actually understood that Monash was out in the sticks and there was little public transport and whatever. So she let me the money out of her own sort of savings account for me to buy a motorbike. And she stood up to my father that that was really important for me. And then a little bit later on, I wanted to buy a farm, which is another whole story which I talk about in the book. And again, Dad said, no, Dad just worth no time, no time for girls being farmers. And not because I think it was sexist, but you just could see how hard it was. And mm. it just wasn't done in the 70s at that stage for girls to, to be single women to have farms. Mm. But Mum said, no. Nah, no we're going to do this so mum would take me out farm shopping <laughs> and mm. eventually um, she found the farm that I eventually bought and and so she was a really important part of my life and providing that support behind me to help me um, do what I need to do and it, 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 it's been so important in my life older women in particular who've put their hand out not only to me but to lots of women and said well look um I've got this position now, but I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going to put my hand out to you and bring you and bring some of your friends in so that when I get knocked off the shelf or, as we would say in agriculture, the harvesters of tall poppies come past, Mm. they might knock one of us off, but there'll be three or four coming up behind us. So that was really my experience in agriculture and with my mother. Great supporters of women, absolutely knew how hard the road was and would do anything they could to help us. Mm. And my life has been populated, and I know for my sisters as well, just that warmth and that sisterhood and that generosity of women leaders reaching out and helping other leaders. And it's certainly something that I hope my book does, is really inspire other women mm. to think about politics because it's got such a bad reputation. And, but for me, while it was certainly really hard work and I worked hard, I loved the job, and it was so satisfying to be there for my community. And I know mm. Helen Haynes and I know Zali Stegall find the same thing. They're really enjoying the work and being sitting around the table and being able to influence policy. It's such a privilege.
0: Mm, yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things is that you, you did after two terms, how did you actually know that it was time to hand over? And not, not quite, obviously it's another independent with Helen Haynes, but how did you know that it was the time to, to step, step down from um, mm. running to be the member there?
1: Oh, Angela, it's a bit of a funny story because I think when I, you asked me before how I felt when I first got to Parliament and mm-hmm. how scared I was. And I thought, well, I'll only do this for one term. <laughs> and my boyfriend, David, said to me, I told him, I said, um, this is horrible. I'm not, not going to stay here. I'll do one term and then I'll go. And he said to me, well, yeah, that's not very clever because the Liberals will just win the seat back and all their hard work will be lost. He said, "You've at least got to win two terms, and then you've got to get a successor." Mm-hmm. And I can remember when he said to me, "Oh, I thought, oh, that's so true. I've got to do two terms, and then then <laughs> then I've got then someone else has got to win, because otherwise it's sort of just a flash in the pan, or it's just a Kathy story." So I think I was into my probably my first year when I realised that it was I would do it for six or seven years, mm. but with the intention of replacing myself with someone who'd be even better than I, um, and could you know stand on my shoulders in that sense. Mm. So it did become part of my long-term plan quite early in the piece. And that was really liberating because I knew I could work really hard for six years or seven and then that would be it for me and then someone else would come in. So again, it was a real, uh, and I've learned that in other jobs. I'd sort of been in lots of positions before where I thought, if you haven't done what you want to do in six years, you've probably outstaged you and you do need to do the succession handover. So it has come from my experience, often on voluntary committees, being chair or being whatever I was for six years was long enough, and it was time then to get let someone else have a go at doing the job.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and and once again, we, we don't necessarily see that um, replicated in many other individuals who, who make it that far. And um, and and maybe that comes back to the nature of being an independent as well. Is it? It's you, you have had an entirely different life, you have had different things, um, and you have. Other things to return to, and you know how to move on, but it doesn't necessarily happen again in, in in the key political parties. I mean, mm, it'd, be, it'd be rare for anyone to only be there for for the for the two terms. <laughs> um, yeah, and and it, mm. that had a lot to do with my um,
1: that sense that I really want this to work for my community because engaging, and and it's not that I've stopped, I've stopped being a politician in Canberra, but I haven't stopped being involved in my community and working with my community on the topics. That I always worked with, so that that's sort of been my life journey, and I'll continue it. I've, um, and I'm and now really happy to share with groups and leadership groups about how Parliament works and how politics works and how you can be more effective in working with your member of Parliament. So now I'm taking all the skill that I got. So I think that's a, a, again about why it's so useful for, for women as independents when you when you're not relying on that job for your status, mm. you're financially able to support yourself, but also emotionally secure in who you are and your identity and what your purpose in life is. So I think you make a much better politician. I personally think that when you come from that place. Mm -hmm.
0: I want to end on, um, before I get to some of the other things that you're doing now, including being on your farm, but um, I I just wanted to ask obviously about the Anti-Corruption Commission and you really pushed for a Federal Integrity Commission and it was always high on your agenda and... We're seeing a same push now from um, Helen Haynes. The Morrison government has said that it's too busy with COVID to, to really look at it at the moment, although seems to says it supports it. Do you think it'll happen? Uh, no, quite frankly. I listened to what
1: politicians say and I heard Mr Morrison say that and I thought it's not a priority for him. He doesn't want it. And if it's not a priority, it's not going to happen. So, um, and the interesting bit of the story is in 2018, Malcolm Turnbull had said to me that he would support an ICAC or equivalent. Scott Morrison said the same thing to my face and actually set up a commission to do it in 2018 and 19, as did Christian Porter. Uh, And they did it under the pressure of a minority government, but nevertheless, those three people said they would do it. And then they found all the excuses in the world not to do it. And here's my sense. is, If the government doesn't want it, it's not going to happen. And I think Christian Porter will bring in, in the next two weeks, a very low-level uh, mm. integrity bit of legislation. Yes. Labor will say, well, this is not good enough, and they'll vote against it. It'll get through the House of Reps. It'll go to the Senate. But it won't get through the Senate because it won't be good enough. And then the government will have this excuse, oh, we tried, but it didn't happen. So that's what I think will happen. And just like climate policy in exactly the same way. And I just think that people like Christian Porter, and I'll, he doesn't have the courage or the the understanding, I think. Well, I don't know why he won't do it. Like, It doesn't make any sense to me why the government wouldn't try and do this when every single state has got one. But clearly there's something holding them back of incredible significance Mm -hmm. to the coalition and Mm -hmm. I don't actually understand what that is but it's so strong that it will definitely I think it it won't happen no Mm -hmm. to my enormous disappointment but that's my prediction
0: yeah yeah obviously very disappointing and I mean it's that sense of of course you you would agree to this in principle Of, of course everyone would agree to this in principle but yeah making it actually happen and um that's a very different story and then so we'll wait and see. I always think it's interesting when you look at what comes out of uh, the New South Wales ICAC, and you can only imagine what would come oh. out of other ones. Then, so, um, yeah. but you can see why why it's um it's 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 necessary, and it could really have the potential to to transform the landscape there. So,
1: so, Angela, people listening to this podcast, if they think an integrity commission is important, and they live in they live in a seat held by a NLP representative, if they want one, now is the time to make sure that they let their Member of Parliament know, and particularly the Senators as well, that this is actually not an optional extra. And the the lack of Prime Minister or Christian Porter interest in this, from an electoral perspective, should not be enough to stop the NLP delivering. But it will only happen if they get enough of a push from the community that we want an integrity commission with uh, robustness and it's well-funded. And at the moment, the government doesn't think that's an electoral issue, so they're not going to do it. Mm, mm.
0: Okay. And, I mean, one other issue there that, that you know, obviously a uh, similar kind of stalemate situation is on climate change. I mean, what what do you think it will take for Australia to really, and we're at a point of being, uh, I heard Penny Wong describe it yesterday, as being internationally isolated on climate change, and increasingly so, and possibly even more so, uh, if Biden does win the U.S. election, because he looks to have quite a progressive climate action um, climate action plans ahead, w- what will it take in Australia for us to actually move and, and catch up with the w- rest of the world on this? And and can I ask, w- what are your feelings w- where you live, and from women in agriculture, and from the farming community? What what are your, your your sense about where we are at on 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 climate change?
1: Well, a sense of enormous desperation. Um, there's an organisation called Farmers for Climate Action that's doing fantastic work but hasn't got the traction. So um, I don't know what it will take. And so I just hope I hope with my book I can inspire more good quality candidates to run at the next election, both in the Senate and in the House of Reps, get elected, not to be effective in their campaign, so they actually get elected, and actually show up the national the National Party and the Liberal Party, that they've missed the boat on this. Mm. So I actually do think it, it means that we've got to stand up and but not just run as independents. You've actually got to win the seat so that you can be around the table. And that's one of the things that I learned. There's a big difference between making the seat marginal and actually winning. And you, you really have to set out to win. So I'm hoping people will read my book and go, oh, this is this is bigger than just a good wish. We actually have to be politically savvy. We have to raise the funds. We have to do the training. And if we if we, if we we do all these things, we've got a really good chance of winning. So I, I think I've given up trying to change the current system on climate. It, it hasn't worked. The only thing I know is I'm more members of parliament with different perspectives, and particularly if they came from rural and regional Australia and understood, like I do, that this is not an optional extra that... It's just so significant, and mm. the blind eye that the National Party and the Liberal Party members turn to it is, is just, it's just. I can't find the word that describes my. Um, I can't find a word that describes my feeling about it. It's just so bad.
0: Mm. Mm. All right, well, the time to start would be now as well because we do not yeah. have time. <laughs> so that's the... No, that's right. So the time to start would be to get your book, to uh, get that advice, to find out. And we, we could be up for a federal election late next year, but otherwise the year after. And so the time to start is now. It's the best way to to create the change that we need on all of these issues Thank you so much for joining me, Cathy. I did want to final end on one point. I just wanted to ask about your life now. What is it like? What are your days like? Um, and and what kind of work are you mostly focused on now? So I'm,
1: I live in Victoria, so we've been in lockdown mostly. Um, so I've been I've been at home. I'm writing the book, working in my garden. I'm just looking at selling some sheep. The prices for sheep are really good at the moment, so I've just been talking to my stock agent about selling some sheep. Uh, and my the other thing I'm doing, I've got a niece who's just finishing year 12 and she's asked me if I will teach her how to spin over the summer months. So I've just organised a spinning wheel so I can teach her how to spin.
0: Thank you again, Cathy. It's wonderful to speak with you. And I encourage everyone to go and get your book and to, I guess, be part of the change that they want to be. So thank you. Cathy McGowan's book is Cathy Goes to Canberra Doing Politics Differently. It's available online and in all good bookstores and really is the journey of how being your best self, as Kathy says, and how leading with integrity and humility and all those other things can lead to game-changing things and I hope more women will follow Kathy's journey into politics. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can really help us out by leaving a review. It really does make a difference. And please go and check out our second podcast, The Leadership Lessons, hosted by Kate Mills. So far this season, Kate has interviewed Julia Gillard, Sonia Stewart, Joe Masters, Dr Kirsten Ferguson and many more, all about what it takes to lead for the critical decade ahead and why female leadership is so vital to get there. The Women's Agenda Podcast is part of the Women's Agenda Podcast Network and it is produced by Agenda Media. Thank you for listening.